Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome back to Inviting Doom. Um, we're just jumping back into um, a second series on fawning. We did one episode previously um, on trauma responses, and we specifically focused on fawning. Um, so, if you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and listen to it. But just in short, fawners are those who have learned to meet the needs of others and appease them to prove their value and worth typically stemming from childhood experiences that may have made them unsure if they were loved and accepted. And overall healthy adult relationships require two people that create a reciprocal environment that is respectful, truthful, and interdependent. So um, we both related to this quite a bit when it came to our own faith backgrounds, either just because of how God can be taught to us um, almost in an abusive parent way. um, And then also in the ways that Uh, the church has positioned itself um, just with social structures where we can feel the almost abusive nature of our social community, um, forcing us to behave in certain ways so that we keep the the relationship healthy. Uh, Well, I I probably shouldn't even use the word healthy. It doesn't keep the relationship healthy. It keeps the relationship moving forward um, because it's never healthy if you have to um, silence yourself and meet the value and worth of others at your own expense. So that's kind of where we were at with fawning. And we talked quite a bit about it, but um, we wanted to do some follow-up. I found an article after we had recorded um, from a lady named Emily Hendrick, and she writes in Medium, and the article is called uh, Fawning of the Flock, Trauma Response and Ministry. And it's beautifully written. I definitely recommend anyone to read the whole thing. Um, But she writes things really well and really poetically um, in a way that spoke to me very strongly because when you've been through this, sometimes you just can't quite put your finger on exactly what's wrong, but you can leave situations, scenarios, relationships, conversations, and you just feel um, a certain way. Like you feel anxious, depressed, something's not right. You feel almost like slimed on emotionally, but then you respond almost with your uh, self-critical lens of it's my fault. What did I do wrong? Maybe I'm not meeting their needs. Maybe I'm not listening. And she really dives into that quite a bit. Uh, One of the quotes that she puts in here is when God is the abusive parent, fawning looks like good Christian devotion, constantly praying and adoring God, feeling guilty or getting angry or doubtful toward God surrendering critical thinking skills in pursuit of believing correct doctrine, trading individual sense of purpose of being used by God and submitting to the belief that anything about you, your lifestyle that doesn't fit the script demanded by your religious groups is your fault and requires self-loathing as penance. And wow, that quote alone just like sums up so much of my experience. Um, and Sarah, I could probably speak for you a little bit here too. You you also related to this. <laughs> um, and, and you can probably, we, we um, dialogued a little bit going back and forth this week 
where Sarah shared some of her journal entries from, what was it, 10 years ago? Yeah, like 2005, so way longer than that. Um, and yeah, there it's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff. And if I sec read some of it here. Oh God, I know you loved me before I was even trying to be like you, before I was even changed at all. Yet instead of resting in that perfect balance of, yes, I am a horrid sinner, but because of you, I am also a saint, I sometimes seem overwhelmed with all I am not. But with you, O oh Father, I think it okay to be overwhelmed sometimes because it reminds me of my true state and desperate need of you. And then I go on later and I say, um, instead of being a woman secure in who I am and in your love, O oh Lord, I become a grasping, clinging, fawning thing, crying, don't leave me. What do you want me to become? What a horrid Christian example. And so, yeah, it's just like this, this shame cycle of just going, oh, I want that perfect balance between recognizing that I'm a horrid sinner and that I'm also loved deeply by you. And yet, stupid old me, I keep falling into this same cycle of where I am fawning and crying and grasping and begging God to not leave me and, and change me and shape me. And um, it's just a really sad cycle that I fully blamed on myself and not on the very idea that I name, which is repeating to myself on the day-to-day -day basis, you are a horrid, awful sinner. Remind me of my state of horridness every single day, oh God, so that I can be fully accepting of how gracious and kind you are to this horrid, crappy, awful person that I am just trying to be better. Um, and that sort of is continuous in my journals. Um, and I think, yeah, it's definitely applicable to, <laughs> to our sort of talk today. Yeah. yeah, so it's been a while, but you can yeah. see even in your diaries how you are walking through this in like real time, yeah. um, trying to force yourself to um, be better, almost like be more perfect. How, why am I not getting this right? You know, what, what was your thought on that when you were going through your journals? Well, it's sort of funny because I'm I'm doing some writing stuff on the side and you and I had been talking about this fawning issue. And I know it's really hard when you're in the church to feel like God is anything but totally perfect because mm -hmm. all of the doctrine that we're taught tells us that God is perfect and God then himself is uh, sort of in scripture put forth as the highest above our understanding, above all our ways, above like reproach, essentially. And mm -hmm. so you grow up with this parent, uh, this God parent, who everyone around you is telling you is this most amazing, um, you know, amazing, loving, kind, compassionate um, being, but the compassion, I think, and the love and the acceptance of God is all built in relationship to how crappy you are so god is so loving um because you're so crap um and he would dare to like love somebody that was so dirty and i, I remember uh journal aside uh in ezekiel there's this passage that 
uh, talks about uh, God, you know, I found you in the dirt and you were covered in blood and you were clo- like clothesless and I bathed mm-hmm. you and took you in. And it was sort of just like the greatness of God is because he finds us in, in how terrible we are. And it's sort of like that dichotomy or that relationship, that unequal relationship is why God is so good. And so in order for you to praise God and, and uphold him in, in that position of being above us, better than us, continually the wiser one, you never, you never can, you know, get above God in that holding that relationship up, you're consistently reminding yourself of how low you are in that relationship. So you're never like actually becoming friends with God because all of a sudden out of nowhere, if something really tragic or awful happens, then suddenly you no longer know what he's doing or why he's doing it. And you just have to trust. So it's this constant unequal relationship that depends on you being sort of prostrate before him all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I already reading, I'm reading back over journals because it's essentially receipts of, because of, of what I was thinking and processing throughout my youth, I started journaling probably age 13, 14 and 13 journals are pretty fun. They're sort of like, I'm so angry that I didn't get to eat pizza today. <laughs> <laughs> really still very innocent and childish before I really had absorbed a lot of um, the heaviness of the belief system that similarly you and I were raised in. Um, and then you start to see age 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 21. 22, 23, 24, all the way up, you just see this intense heaviness, encroaching, encroaching anxiety, all these things that I had just so deeply internalized out of my sole purpose to serve God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and mm-hmm. love him with every fiber of my being. And it was just like, you never, I never got anywhere. Like most of my journals are just so frustrated at myself, so angry at myself, so irritated that I'm always sinning and I'm always failing and I'm always, and yet God is so amazing because he keeps forgiving me and he keeps taking me back for all the evil things I'm doing. And I'm like, I don't even know what evil things I was doing. I never dated anybody. I never did drugs. <laughs> Anytime I lied, I apologized. I, like, yeah. it was, I never, I was such a, a good person. And it was just this internal agony over the state of my soul um, compared yeah. to God's grace and his goodness, which is probably when I've said before why I hated the grace word. That's sometimes where it comes from. But I sort of um, need to touch on too. It's sort of like, well you know, church and family itself is not necessarily abusive. Like you and I didn't grow up in abusive homes and we didn't not at all. And, and wouldn't even call our church families abusive at all. Like a lot of amazing, beautiful, lovely people really trying their hardest to Mm -hmm. to deal with this doctrine and to deal with God himself. Right. Essentially though, we are taught from the beginning that God was the only thing that mattered. Right. And pleasing him is the only important thing. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you're told you need to love and obey God and that a hell exists and that your life will be full of doom if you don't obey those standards that the church sets out and interprets from the Bible, you really, really quickly learn to, um, as Hedrick said in her thing, delete no from your vocabulary. So no becomes a word that you just don't say. God is doing this. The church requires this. 
pastor saying this, you just delete no. So you, from the beginning, remove all of that assertiveness that's actually required, as my therapist says, required to develop into a healthy adult. Um, You need to assert yourself and know your own boundaries in order to develop from being a child into an adult. And yet, what we're taught in church is to always remain children, right? And so becoming a functional, healthy adult that knows themselves and has boundaries and understands how to protect themselves, you're already from as a child, you're learning to delete no and delete that assertiveness out of your life, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly, like, if you really want to be good, like I did, and you did and love God, Um, you kind of have to remove every ounce of what you think is resistant or defiant to what the church holds out as God. So it's like, you're, you're constantly combing yourself. Well, at least I was at night, I would like comb myself and go, is there any resistance to what God wants? Is there any resistance to this? Or if, if I feel like God's asking me to do a thing, is there any resistance to, you know, that, and I remember a traveling preacher, if I'm ranting now, a traveling (laughs) had come to town and had sort of like done, you know, the, the point and the point and prophecy <laughs> mm-hmm. people are found in the church and they're like, what's your name? And I feel like God is leading you to whatever. And yeah. so God was apparently leading me to Africa to like live in Africa and work with people or whatever. And I just, my immediate reaction was like, I don't want it. Like I was interested in fashion and I was interested in like, music and art and I was like I don't want to live in like I have no desire to go to Africa (laughs) and just the torment of going over into my heart over and over and going god just strip down any resistance in me like if there's anything that you know is resisting this going to Africa to be a minister like just take that away and I was like obviously I didn't end up in Africa and (laughs) yeah Well, I think like some of it is so tricky because Hendrik pointed this out and you've Mm -hmm. kind of said this too, where because we, we loved God and we loved the Christian tradition, Mm -hmm. we basically would study ourselves and study our entire lives to figure out how to do that well. And, and, you know, like it was our main drive basically to first and foremost, be a good Christian, you know, and then everything else was secondary. And, but it's hard to do that well when <laughs> when you're always kind of struck down and destroyed by like the the bad theology or your church group or even your inner critic when you don't have the capability of um, asserting yourself kind of what you said like thinking critically about some things even a prophecy given to you you know yeah. like I think that maybe some more mature Christians would think, I don't feel God actually saying that to me. So I'm testing that word in my own heart and it doesn't prove true. So I'm going to move on where others of us who are maybe more perfectionists or more fawners would really wrestle with stuff like that. And it wouldn't just be this nonchalant prophecy given to us on a Sunday morning. It would probably be something for you and for me that like, we would really think about four years, like, God, am I doing your will? Did I not hear you correctly? Am I being disobedient, removing me an unclean heart, things like this, right? And with fawners, we're excellent listeners. We're constantly open to the suggestion and criticism, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to kind of align ourselves with what we feel like has been interpreted as scripture to us or to the flock in general. Um, And then probably for both you and I, that was true up until a point, right? Obviously now we're deconstructing a little bit and investigating our own faith, 
but it's probably only because those things prepare us for burnout or they prepare you to either completely destroy your own identity and who you actually are or to eventually hit a wall and say like, wow, this isn't working for me, <laughs> right? Totally. And it's really tricky too, because there's this tension between God being great and God being all loving and all knowing and all powerful and like saving us from our sin and as part of like who he is and part of how much he loves us. But then there's this other side of the coin that's faith without works is dead. So then you also feel like you have to hustle and you have to prove yourself and you have to do something. And so for fawners, that ends up translating into hustling really to earn your your redemption and to earn your, I guess, your access into heaven almost. Even though when you do that, then you feel like you need to chastise yourself because you should be trusting that God is loving enough and has already paid for your sins. And so the cycle just continues. Am I doing enough? Am I am I working hard enough for my faith? Do I have enough acts? Or am I not doing my part? And is God actually upset with me? Totally. And, well, yeah. So the two things that faith without works is dead. And then you're also taught that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And then you're also taught that all our righteous works that we do try are like filthy rags to God. Um, and we're taught that our heart is wicked above all things, that our efforts at goodness are just crap, that it's not really worth anything. Um, and that it's literally, I remember there was this band in uh, Bible college and one of their songs talked about how it's like, by God's great love, we are not consumed essentially by his anger. So it's like God God's anger and wrath towards us is so great, but it's his love that steps in between. It's like, like you can imagine that as a, like a parent of how dysfunctional that is that someone's in a corner ranting and raving like a lunatic about how unorderly his children are and how like terrible and wicked they are. And that he'd like to send a flood and wipe them all out. And then on the other hand, then he's like, flipping himself in front of the children going, Oh no, but you can't do that. You have to love them. You have to like, it's just like, and so then as a child, you're trying to navigate that of not having works of trusting in God because God's so loving, but he's also protecting you from his own wrath against you all the time. And like, like it's so dysfunctional that it's you're always guessing. That's the thing is you're always guessing. Yes. And there's no, um, there's no firm ground. And I think that you can look at that in other dysfunctional relationships and realize like if you're walking into a room and you're always trying to gauge the tone of the space before you say or do anything, because you're kind of walking on eggshells, like you don't want to upset anything. You don't, you want to keep the magic or whatever. If you've been in other relationships or situations like that, you can kind of pick up like, hmm, I'm having to really tiptoe around here. Otherwise things might explode. And if you're approaching your faith and your church community like that too, you could then maybe see through that lens, like, hmm, there must be something dysfunctional there. Because if I have to be so careful, otherwise, there's like a fear of retribution, either from mm. the flock or from God, that's not, that's not healthy. That's you not know, like, that's not a good way to live. Can you imagine mm. living your whole life like that instead of being able to like go to your partner or your friends or to God and just being your authentic self? Like, what a treat 
that would be. <laughs> well, and I don't know about you, although I'm assuming this is true, but like for me anyway, it's not like that just stays isolated where you're assessing your in-out groupness uh, in relation to the, the church, like your community. And you're always checking and making sure that, you know, everyone's happy and that you're fine because mm-hmm. you're doing that with God all the time. You're always mm-hmm. praying to him, always like making sure, God, have I done any sin today? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? You yeah. know, make sure I'm humble. And yeah, you're trying to be humble, except at the same time, you're being told that you're like saved and that you're better because you are one of the elite chosen few that is going to like make it. And so you have all these like conflicting messages that really mess with your sort of self-esteem, but then it carries into your relationships as well. Like your actual human friend relationships with your partner or even friends of like checking in all the time, like worried, did I say something wrong? Did I do this? Is there any in me that before I come to them, I have to make sure that I'm like, right. And And then is my partner happy? Um, Have I done everything right? Am I a good wife? Am I this? Am I that? And I I think there is definitely a gendered element where because women are particularly in the theology that we grew up in are particularly told to be extra submissive and Mm -hmm. extra sort of not uh, assertive. And you're not trained to be the head of anything. Like you're not trained to be the leader of your house. You're not trained to lead Bible studies. You're not trained to lead um church you don't see women as pastors yeah yeah and so you're just extra prone I think to really taking on that burden of being super submissive and super um fawning right yeah absolutely yeah you definitely nail it on the head it doesn't stay isolated in just your faith sphere or your faith box it infiltrates every relationship and in every scenario of your life so yeah, it doesn't matter if you're talking to an academic professor or, you know, some sort of secular relationship, you will always be kind of investigating yourself in every conversation, every action of like, oh, I wonder if they're going to take something I said the wrong way. And um, almost kind of managing, I feel like it ends up being like you're managing and controlling as best you can your perceptions of what could have been perceived. So it's a lot of magical thinking. And then your response to that magical thinking to appease or cover up or make certain that everyone's kind of happy and at peace, and things yeah. are flowing, where um, I think in a healthy relationship, if you actually said or did something wrong, that person would be like, hmm, that you said something to me the other day, and it didn't sit right with me. Can, can we talk about it? And you would be like, yeah, of course, I'll listen to that. But I think that for the most part, if your friends are in good relationship with you, we're all assuming the best out of each other. And they'll know what your intentions are for the most part. And they won't assume any malicious intent. And there can be a, a pretty good conversation and, and, and moving forward. And you wouldn't have to kind of second, your, second guess every move you're making, right? Um, and in therapy, I was just even thinking too, like there's this concept of trying to figure out you know, what's mine and what's yours. So if you're in some sort of conflict with your parents or a friend, you know, you can look at the scenario and say, okay, here's what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for my actions and how I said this and how I said that, but I'm not responsible for how, you know, this other person acted or behaved. I'm not responsible for their childhood and how they became the person they are. You know, you kind of separate what what's yours and what's theirs. And mm-hmm. as a fawner, I feel like I've never separated the two. I'm always not necessarily taking it on as my 
my own garbage, but I take it on as my responsibility to really see the extent of who a person is and then anticipate how they may perceive actions or words or deeds and then change myself in accordance to anticipate those perceptions, right? Yeah. And it's just exhausting. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's exhausting. And I think I think you're right. And that's the thing of where the fawning trauma response comes from, is that understanding from a very young age that there is a standard that needs to be conformed to that mm-hmm. is better than you, and it is higher than you, and it's actually the only thing in the world that matters. And so you have this impossible standard that's set, you know it from a young age, even if you know that the standard is quote unquote, good and loving and kind, it's still a standard that's external to you, that you have to make sure you're in good stead with that standard. So that standard is there, it exists from eternity, it's always been there. Um, you don't get to define it. You don't get to have a say in it. Your whole life is supposed to rotate around this standard and conform to this standard. And so from a very young age, you're learning conformity at the expense of yourself. So you're not allowed to assert yourself. In fact, I mean, our church grew up on uh, James Dobson crap. Mm -hmm. And it's some of the worst stuff out there. But it was totally normal for parents in churches to uh, spank their kids to do whatever it takes to make sure that that resistance and that stubbornness that they perceived might be a threat to their soul. Like if you're stubborn towards God, if you're stubborn towards your parents, you're going to be stubborn towards God. And, you know, we have to like, hit that out of you, because the only thing that matters is getting you into heaven, right? And Mm -hmm. sort of making sure you have this dear and precious and loving relationship with Jesus. So even if it hurts your body, even if it hurts your self, even if you receive some sort of damage in the breaking of your bones to reform and remold into this proper standard, then that's what needs to happen. And if you actually are trying to be a good Christian and you really do love Jesus with all your heart um, and you want to have that relationship as it's held out, you do those things to yourself. So you're breaking your own bones. You're, you know what I mean? You're conforming yourself. You're, like you said, scanning the room. You're internalizing that scan in every relationship to make sure nothing is like going to stick out or be pokey or... Uh, get in the way of you being close to an external, an external standard in a sense. So a new person comes into your life that is your husband that you're supposed to be submissive to that you're supposed to have, they're the head of the house, you're like, okay, how can I conform to that ideal and that standard? How can I shut myself down in ways that I'm resistant resistant Mm -hmm. so that I can then become what I'm supposed to become and what God wants me to become. And so you're, like you said, it's exhausting, but it's also incredibly damaging because then later on, as you and I know, you have to sort of find ways to find yourself again, because you essentially become nothing. I was going to say the one thing on that is just the huge self-esteem issues that come out of that. And then mm-hmm. the other thing I was going to say was the sort of the hilarity of, of of trying to be close to people when all that's left in you is Jesus. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll try and touch on that latter one because I do have a funny journal story, but the, um, the self-esteem one's huge. And so I was scrolling Facebook the other day. I tried to never be on there, but uh, generally I try not to. And then sometimes I regress and... <laughs> 
(laughs) what's on there. Um, But I had a friend who's in ministry now wrote something like, I'll be honest, there's days where I feel like I'm not worth fighting for. But then I remember Jesus gave up everything to come and die for me. I'm definitely, I definitely don't deserve his love, but he still gives it. That's it. Like, that's like that perfect cycle that we talked about is where you're like, I'm crap. I'm not worth, I feel I'm not worth fighting for. I know what's true. I know that God loves me and that he uh, died for me, even though I'm worthless and even though I'm crap, but he's so amazing, but I'm crap, but he's so amazing. And so now I feel bad for feeling like crap because I know what the truth is, but I don't believe it. And I'm obviously struggling with feeling like crap yet. I know that he's amazing. And you're always thinking that those ideas are coming from Satan or they're coming from yourself or they're coming from the world. Nobody's ever looking going, that's because it's coming from the theology. (laughs) It's coming from the beliefs that you're saying you believe. It's literally creating that crap feeling inside of you all the time, you know, just where you're failing the standard. And so it's sort of like you're always battling, quote unquote, battling with the sinful part of yourself that is running yourself into the ground and saying, Oh, again, I thought you prayed about this. I thought, you know, this was supposed to get better. And this thing that you were struggling with, Oh, it seems like it's becoming an idol. And now it's all this. Right. And it's just like this exhausting cycle of like, you know, you're never going to get better because if you do even better, the one area of your life, you're never going to become perfect in this life. So it's just going to be something else that God brings out in you and shows you, oh, you good. You finished that little project there that tormented 10 years of your life. (laughs) Um, Now look at this area over here. You know, you're prideful or you're this or you're that. you're that and you just you never get anywhere and it's just like how discouraging because none of us I don't think operate well like that no of course not and I think that that kind of points to what I was going to say too is um I've learned that this is definitely like a lifelong process for me where I don't know that I'll ever completely overcome my um developed nature as a fauner like completely conquer that right like I think that until the day I die I'll get better and better at it as I um have discovered that it's even present and how it's manifesting in my life um I can get better at responding in different ways but I think it'll just be kind of a part of who I am um throughout my life and it's a process but I think that there's only room for you to grow in these areas, if you allow yourself the freedom to either a get therapy, b have a community that allows you to investigate your faith or your lack of faith freely and encourages you in that journey. um, And actually doesn't threaten either hell or, you know, your ostracization from the community. Um, But it's like, I don't know that it's something that we'll be ever completely free of, but I think that we can em- embrace the process of growing and, and healing kind of piece by piece in that. Um, and I would say that like, I don't know for me personally, I know that I cannot do that in the context of attending a church, which yeah. is I think really hard. That's been really hard for me. And I think it'd be hard for some of our listeners who, depending on where they're at in their faith journey, um, you know, the church is kind of like your lifeblood in your community. And we talked about this in one of our initial episodes, but for me, I, I really don't have the freedom 
to actually discover God and my true faith or investigate questions or even question alone within the context of um, church and the conformity pressures that I feel. And um, I've had to kind of wrestle with that through the years because I look at the church and I love the church. I love the people there. They're wonderful. And they didn't, they didn't mean to be mean and they didn't mean to create these patterns in my life, but there's a difference between having good intentions and having a bad impact. And there's been a poor impact in my life despite good intentions. And I don't need to be bitter at those people. I don't need to, you know, throw hate or shame on them. That's not my intention, but I need to, I need to, for myself, realize that you can be hurt even when people don't intend to hurt you. And I can't keep myself in the same environment and expect to heal. And um, I don't think that I could expect to even find God if there's still still a God. And I have faith that there is a God, <laughs> even though some of the details get cloudy to me. I don't think that I could find him in the midst of that kind of chaos where I will just kind of skeet back into the same patterns of wanting to be submissive to authority and to my husband and to everybody and not anger anybody and not upset anybody and, you know, just everything that we've been talking to, uh, talking about it, excuse me. So, um, yeah, it, it adds when you really face it, I think I'm sure I'm not alone out there where you really have to kind of face um, not only what, what do I believe and who am I, but how can I, now as an adult who can ha- assert her own will and have her own thoughts, how can I as an adult take responsibility for my own healing in this? Because I cannot expect to continue to heal in the environment that has made me sick. Totally. And I think it even to put it out there, there, there is no uh, right or wrong. Like even like you and I were lucky to have good churches. A lot of people actually do have bad churches with malicious people with abuse. True. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's like, like we're lucky that we can look back and not really put any fault on people who are also all trying their best and trying to be good people. Yeah. And we're lucky that way that our individual churches were okay. And probably other people out there have similar experiences where their churches weren't anything but you know a group of well-meaning people but also there are churches out there that were really negative and it's okay if people are angry and bitter and I think part of the thing too is that if we can throw this progress timeline out and just go it's actually okay that we'll never get certain places like being able to rest more just in ourselves and just go maybe this is a facet of my personality that isn't going to change me and I'm okay with that I recognize that I'm aware um, because I think one of the things we take away from church too is this incessant progression forward where we always have to be more perfect and better and you know and that fits in with the capitalist expansion sort of concept well, we don't want to be complacent Sarah we know no, the verses on complacency or, or lukewarm or lukewarm yeah dear <laughs> lord forbid. save me heaven forbid. Um, And yeah, so I think like anyone coming out of that stuff and finding out where it's safe for them to, to reconnect to themselves, wherever safe for you, that's where you should be because grand if people mean well, but people meaning well, 
let's just isn't enough. Yeah. And let's just assume that most people, when they get up each morning, most people are not trying to be terrible people. They want to do the best that they can. They have limited tools. That doesn't mean you need to be friends with everybody. It doesn't mean you need to be in a situation. Um, But yeah, I think, I think there's probably a few more things that we could maybe touch on just as a recap um, next time. Um, especially I do have some juicy bits of sort of my 20 year old self struggling with these things that probably are worth throwing out there. Um, But I think we will wrap up for this week and maybe carry this on to, uh, to a part three, because I think there are probably a couple things that we could touch on. Um, Krista, do you have anything else you want to add before we sort of wrap up? No, I think that was a beautiful kind of tie up. And I, I guess I would just implore our listeners to um, do what you had said to is find, find your safe space, um, whatever that looks like for you. And yeah, discover, discover who you are and um, take the time that you need. There's no pressure for you to be in certain relationships or in certain spaces until you are confident of who and where you need to be. So until next time, everyone, we will um, wrap it up for now and can't wait to carry on this conversation next week with you, Krista. 